Welcome to Rooted and Unwavering, a podcast and radio show which features leaders from all walks of life in conversations about courageous connectedness. How do we stay connected to our best selves, especially when we are challenged? What becomes possible when we truly stay committed to our own and others' greatness, also when we don't feel it? Join host Hilke Faber, transformational coach, facilitator, and award-winning author of Taming Your Crocodiles, and his guests as they explore leadership greatness in today's episode of Rooted and Unwavering. Well, welcome to Rooted and Unwavering, broadcasting live from Phoenix, Arizona, where we help leaders connect more deeply to their innate potential. This is the 24th episode. I'm your host, Hilke Farber, and I'm here today with Case Bousman. I'm so happy to be here today with you today. How are you today, Case? Well, I'm great. In the Netherlands, it's pretty much Arizona weather already now for a month. So uh, Dutch people may are then very, very happy. Yesterday, for the first time I, in my life, I did bird watching. Somebody showed me 34 different kinds of birds in, in one hour. So that's uh, very impressive for me. Wow. Well, I'm so happy there are still 34 different kinds of birds to look at in one hour. That's pretty beautiful and really nice to see you again. We met in person as well in the Netherlands about a week ago. And before I say more about this podcast and about the case, one thing I will say about the case is I was stuck. I was struck, not stuck. I was struck as I was walking into Case's office with the humility and humanity and commitment I sensed. This this is a man who has very deep purpose and lives it, and we'll learn about this more. But before we hear more about Case, uh, I want to say a little bit more about this podcast series as well as a way of grounding, which we do in the beginning of every single of these rooted and wavering conversations. We're doing these conversations so that each of us can connect more deeply to what is true. And listening to others, I often find that I personally get inspiration. One person once said that a mind is like a dangerous neighborhood. It's better not to go there by yourself. And I find that when I think of people around me, I get uplift. I get like, ah, it's like I get some more oxygen in the heart, in the brain. My, I get more possibilities of, of seeing maybe things a little differently. And it's also very humbling because my ego mind gets checkmated all the time. It's like, yeah, nah, that's not the full picture, Hilka. That's not the full picture. So that's what we're here today to experience more, to listen to another leader who I admire for their courageous connectedness to what's important for them and uh, learn from them about what it's like to be connected to what you truly value and lead from that place. So today we have with us Case Bousman. He comes with us to us with, with eons of experience. He got his degrees in 1989. I know that's a prehistoric in 2023 for some people. I was alive back then, but maybe a few years behind in terms of age. He got his uh, Master of Science and PhD from the University of Wageningen and research in the Netherlands. And he became Director of Technology and Business Development at PAC. And then he became a full professor uh, at the university at the Subdepartment of Environmental Technology at Wageningen University. And since 2003, he's a full professor. 
uh, in the field of biological re re reuse and recovery technology. And his current focal point is the biorecovery of organics and minerals from waste streams for reuse in industry and agriculture. Now, that's already a lot, but not quite enough for Case, apparently, because besides being a full professor, he also is the founder, used to be the leader, or one of the leaders of, and currently is executive board member of the VETSUS European Center of Excellence for Sustainable Water Technology in Leeuwarden, which is the town that I used to go to high school in, in, in the Netherlands, in Friesland, the north of the Netherlands. And the objective for VETSUS is to create a business-driven international multidisciplinary research program for all aspects of water technology. Besides that, he is a father, a husband. He has many interests. I know that. Uh, his wife is an artist also. There's a piece of art that we'll discuss in a moment as well that if you're just listening, I will describe what it's like because I think it's emblematic for what you're talking about. Let's get into the conversation now. So, Case, what have you learned in your life about connecting to what's true and what's important to you? Oh, that's a difficult question. Since you already told everybody how old I was, so there are, of course, many phases in your life where you, where you learn things. Mm -hmm. What have you learned? Yeah. I, it's a too open question. Uh, there are too many things that come to mind now. I was expecting a different question. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so glad. So you already are talking about how it changed, how the answer changed in your life. So maybe you can talk, talk to us a little bit about how what was truly important to you has evolved in your life. Maybe tell, a little, tell us a little bit about your journey of connecting to what's been important to you in your life? When I was at high school, which was in the 70s, there were already a lot of environmental problems in those days. We were also already afraid of the plastic. We were already afraid of the, of the CO2. And there was a climate crisis. So we always, the, not the climate crisis, the, the oil crisis. So we were afraid there was not enough oil. So the papers were full of windmills and, and solar cells. And that time, it's also interesting to understand that the Rhine, it's one of the biggest rivers of Europe, is going through the Netherlands, was completely dead in 1970, and all the fish died because of the pollution. It was a very uh, polluted time, uh, crisis time, and I decided that I would go to, to the university to study environmental technology to clean up the world. And that has been my mission my entire life uh, to 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 work on this uh, this this mission to to innovate, and slowly but certainly I found out during my career that that indeed innovation is my central theme, mm -hmm. and everything that comes with innovation because that's not so easy to be a real innovator, mm -hmm. and uh, and and every time when I make it make a sidestep to become more a business manager or. or or a teacher, then always again, I ended up uh, uh, back at the innovation part in all the jobs, jobs that I did. Ah, yes, yes. So a lot of innovation. I want to hear a bit more about what happened after the 70s and then as you started pursuing your field of studies. Tell us a little bit about Case as a kid and as a teenager. How did you grow up and what prepared you to make that choice? Because 
you were together with, I think there were 13 or 14 million people living in the Netherlands at the time, in the 70s. Not everybody said, I'm going to clean up the world. So how did Case get to that idea? Yeah, th- that's very important because uh, when I was uh, a little boy, I was always convinced I was going to be a farmer. In the plot of my parents, I had my own garden and I could uh, grow my own vegetables, uh, at least try to do that. And uh, I was convinced I was going to be a farmer. But at school, I scored very bad. I could not read. Uh, my mother had to teach me reading. At uh, My father actually had to teach me reading at house because I could not learn it at school. And uh, the expectations were not so high, of case. And then all of a sudden, when I was uh, about eight years, you know, you get this uh, fantastic teacher that somehow fires up your self-confidence. And also my father one time said, well, if you want to be a farmer, you have to go to the Wageningen Agricultural University. So in the Netherlands, you know, uh, when you're 11, you have to uh, prove yourself that you can go to the university already. It's, it's a very early point in life that you have to prove that. Mm-hmm. So with this teacher and with this ambition of my father, uh, all of a sudden something changed and I, I, yeah, within a few years, I was in the top of my class and I could easily go to the to the pre-university high school and then indeed go to Wageningen, which was very special for a boy from Amsterdam because I'm from Amsterdam. Yes. Virtually no one from Amsterdam goes to Wageningen. And right. uh, so that, that was, uh, yeah, I had a very clear mission, but it changed from being a farmer, it changed to being an environmental engineer. And how did that shift occur? Why you not become a farmer? Yeah, that that's that is intuition, I think. At, uh, mm. So I was I was at this university, mm-hmm. and I I opted for both positions still, mm-hmm. but then at a certain moment you had to make a choice to go for the farming side or go for the environmental side because it's completely different classes. Then uh, my intuition told me uh, it has to be environment. Yeah, so I I do not know really know why. Yes, yes, yes. You talk about your intuition said, I had to be doing that. And it's interesting that you had some awareness of that already at that early age, where usually people's hormones and societal influences drive a lot of our inner compass. Um, But you had some sense already of what was truly important to you from from a deeper place. So tell a little bit more about how that connection with that deeper place that guided you to be an innovator kept nudging you along. Like you, you, be, you started to, to be university, you started to dedicate yourself to this, and then what happened next? I guess uh, many times in life you have to make a choice mm-hmm. between two or three things. And, and, uh, and then it's always very difficult to decide eh, that you can be, it can freeze, can freeze you and so when I uh, graduated as a PhD, so I became a doctor in environmental sciences, I got a job from uh, the oil company Shell mm-hmm. and with uh, the offices in Rotterdam. And I was offered a job in Friesland for an environmental technology company. And I was doubting enormously uh, between, because they were both environmental jobs, mm-hmm. uh, but the but the, the one from Park would have been much more uh, innovative than the one from Shell, which mm-hmm. I was, I think, not completely aware of at that moment. But but then again, uh, I doubted about this for about two weeks. And then again, my intuition eh, or something inside me 
mm-hmm. told me I should go to Park. So I think I'm very true to myself because mm-hmm. when I look back now, 40 years, uh, then you can would really see that that probably being an environment engineer was a much better choice than being a farmer because mm-hmm. that was some kind of child fantasy I had uh, because I helped on the, on the farm a few times. And if you look at the real life of farmers, uh, it's completely different. Huh? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, if I look back at the company Shell, eh, what kind of career I would have had there and look at this company uh, I went to, what career I, I have had, then yes. I'm very glad that I, I, cho- I chose that. This, of course, these are, are, are life-determining choices, eh, both of them. And yes. trying to be very honest and true to yourself, that's very difficult because my whole family said, why you go to Wageningen? That is not a big university. How are you going to earn money in the future when you go there? And people, when they hear you could go to Shell, and why do you go to such a small company? So yes. it's clear that for me, it was not the big, big money and the thing that was important. It's always... Yeah. Yeah, feeling that I should contribute something. You should contribute something. You contribute so much already. And you at that age, you already started to contribute so much in that age because then you started working for this Dutch company in Friesland. Yes. You didn't go for the glamorous big name Shell career. You went for something that most people at that time probably hadn't heard of much. So no, I don't think so. <laughs> so what happens there? I had invented a new technology when I was PhD and Shell offered me that I could I could develop that further at their company and commercialize it. So that was, of course, a fantastic, interesting experience because there's only a few people in the world that invent something and then come into the position that they can com- commercialize it also themselves. Yes, 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 yes. So, and you must imagine that that I invented the technology for, for biological gas desulfurization. So gas contains... Uh, sulfides that is this uh, rotten egg smell very mm-hmm. familiar it's very familiar rotten. yes yeah it's extremely dangerous uh, even in the netherlands every year uh, several people die of it mm-hmm. and uh, so you have to remove it and so i found uh, bacteria that could that could convert it into elemental sulfur which is completely safe it's a, a, a completely biological process mm-hmm. and and that worked very well. And then, so first you do it in lab, but then you have to do it on pilot scale. Then you have to build it on full scale. And then you have to find out all the, the problems and optimizations and other applications. Mm-hmm. And very interestingly, I uh, also signed a cooperation agreement with Shell to try out this process for natural gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shell is, of course, also very big in natural gas. And then uh, in, in Canada, we built the first a natural gas desulfurization plant according to my process and now it's it's used all over the world so mm. i've seen all these different stages and that was mm. that's very interesting also for my further career as being uh, an innovator yes 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 so it, it gave you some what gave what did that experience with shell gave you what did i give you the the, the, the second one you mean yes for a company as Spark, who was very big in water treatment, it was impossible to go into the natural gas business. Nice. And so you needed a company like Shell to do that. And mm-hmm. I had talked to Shell already uh, several times before, and every time they didn't believe it. And then, but Shell, of course, is such a big company, so in so many departments. So finally, we, f- we found a department that wanted to, to try it. 
and they tried it out and they couldn't believe their eyes that this biological technology was so incredibly more simple than their mm. chemical technologies mm. and, and using no chemicals um, and, and, and having no side streams and being much more safe also mm. that they, they, yeah, they were uh, flabbergasted and, uh, and that's when we signed the agreement to continue uh, developing this technology. Beautiful, sir. A man that stayed true to his convictions is what I hear and was able to push through some pretty hefty opposite winds as well, maybe opposing winds as well. So you were working at this smaller company in the Netherlands, PAC, and tell us a little bit more about what you learned in those ensuing decades about connecting what was true for you and and leading and living from that place. Yeah, so uh, of course you're very young then and you're not completely aware what is true for you. But for me, have, for my successes at PAC, very quickly I became responsible of all innovations at PAC. Mm-hmm. And that also meant that I had to steer a group of, of more than, than uh, 30 to 50 people. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a PSD, nobody has ever taught you how to be a leader or how mm-hmm. to steer or manage people. And, and mm-hmm. also in such a small company, there are no formal training programs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have to... to to find that out a little bit yourself. Mm. And mm. yeah, for me, it was very clear. It is impossible for one person because these are all researchers. Eh? So they're all people that are acquiring and studying and, and uh, their own technologies. And so very quickly, you cannot support them anymore from the content point of view. That's impossible. <laughs> so for me, it was very clear. If you want to be a leader, you have to support them more from the personal growth point of view and the non-technical part. Uh-huh. So so I did took initiative to to take uh, to, to also then work on my own personal growth. Uh, because that 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 of course if you don't do that you can also not be a, a coach for others. And yes. uh, so that's all that was always been uh, beside innovation, personal growth has always been the, the second uh, guideline in my life. Uh-huh. And I think uh, also, the yeah, for a very large part, the basis of my success, eh, because the family I came from, it's my father, he had a small business of one person, so I could not get any leadership training from him. Eh? He never, mm-hmm. never did anything in that field. So I had to really go from, yeah, I had to, to build that up myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, this the company Vetsis I founded. For me, it was very clear that personal growth was going to be one of the pillars of the entire company. So uh-huh. we have a, a, a personal growth program for everyone that enters that's uh, from the start. Yes. So and that's uh, and I still very strongly believe that a company can only grow if the people grow. So yes. you can you can pressure people. Then slowly but certainly uh, you will yeah you will lose uh, any flexibility and any. Uh, any growth potential. If you grow the people, then your entire company grows. Yes, 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 yes. So talk about your personal development a little bit. Um, In your book, Humanity is Not a Plague, how 10 billion people can exist together. I have the Dutch copy here on my desk. The mens is geen plaag. Over samenleven met 10 miljard mensen op aarde. In Dutch, the same as what I just said in English. And in this book, 
you talk a little bit about the growth, growth as well, and you talk about how there's this, you could say, kind of attractive part, presence, the one, you know, the sense of being, and then you also talk about shadow work. So since I like crocodiles and taming crocodiles, I'd like to hear a little bit from you about what were some of the shadows that you've had to face in your own growth and maybe realizing like, hmm, no, I'm not that. No, no, I, no, I'm not that. That gets in the way of my light. You see more yes, well, that? I think uh, it's the other way around. The, ah. the shadow disappears if you accept who you are. Ah. So uh, when you want to be somebody who you're not, then you have shadow. So uh, if you see yourself as a very nice person, but people around you don't think you're a very nice person, then you have a shadow and you always get angry whenever people don't like you. So, but when you know you're not nice, then it doesn't worry you anymore. And then the shadow disappeared and then you can, and you can then be much more inspirational. So getting to know your not so nice parts that you want to polish away. Uh, that in my opinion is the, is the, at least the easiest part of shadow work. Of course, you're also going to have pathological shadows, uh, which I am not aware of that I have that. But then you need more, of course, psychoanalytical, uh, psychological help eh, to, to mm -hmm. get rid of them. Mm -hmm. But I think for 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 people, uh, for everyone, uh, getting to know yourself better mm -hmm. and in that way removing your shadow is the is the easiest and best way to become a better person. And it's especially the things you get annoyed for other people. That's the best direction to your own shadows. That's always has to do something with your shadows. Can you give an example of what you've gotten annoyed about in other people that was a pointer to your own shadow? Yeah, some people are afraid of me because I'm so incredibly direct. Ah. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, I, I think I can be very diplomatic, but, but in a normal uh, especially Anglo-Saxon worlds, this is considered completely non-diplomatic. Uh -huh. And people always have to get used to it and they like it very much because they get what they see. And in the beginning, so people didn't like me because of this. And mm. that for me was not clear because I probably could not accept yet that I was, yeah, that this was my way of communication. So I got, I get a lot of uh, acquisitions about being an, uh, difficult person or a harsh person or, or whatever and uh, so and at a certain moment you realize and you can also explain better to people that this this is not because of them this is just because who i am and, ah. like i said uh, most most of my staff love it after a while but in the beginning no, well you have to you have to to learn these things about yourself like i said in the beginning i i my first job i did everything i could that people would like me. Yeah, that was not a good approach. Ah, so, so yes, I'm yes, being, yes. Because I must also uh, admit that maybe I'm not always so nice, especially since I know now that I have a very direct way of communicating, which people, many people just do not consider nice. Uh, it's, uh, yes, yes. Uh, and, and what I'm hearing you say, Case, is you have accepted that directness as that's who I am, and I'm not going to be worried that people may not always like it I've, I've let go of that attachment to people liking me or pleasing everyone like i'm case and i am direct 
and that might scare some people and that's okay yes and then and the more you can accept about yourself the more authentic you become so i remember i remember one time i went to a, a a training for authentic leadership and the one thing i learned from that training was that i was by far the most authentic leader in the training even much more than the trainers so i didn't need that kind of training anymore and 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 then you see how polished the idea of managers is how managers should behave how leaders should behave so polished and uh, uh. and that i yeah that, that it was clear for me that i already had was that was behind me so and ah, yes 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 i love how you say it's behind me it's like it, you're you're pointing to some kind of evolution i think that a human being goes through where it may be for a while useful to polish something and to become like this idea of what you think you should be and then you realize that that's not me <laughs> let me be me let me be me uh, as one of my teachers likes to say the whole purpose of development is to stand in your own two shoes and to stand in your own two shoes stand in your own two shoes so how does that relate to this beautiful painting behind you if it relates at all and describe the painting because not everybody can see it. Yeah, the the painting. So um, first, I have to tell this uh, this story in environmental environmental sciences. Uh, many times, people become a little bit depressed that the world is still going backwards if we are talking about the environment. And the reason is then mostly the conclusion people uh, will draw is that people are bad, and that is not, there is this is a hopeless situation. And from environment studies, it's, it's proven that it's not true, that 30% of the people are good, 10% of the people are bad, and 60% is influential, is, you can influence. Mm. And um, so I would call the people that are good from themselves, I will call them suns, and the people that can be influenced, I call them moons. And moon only give light when there is sun around. So that's the responsibility of suns to radiate light so that the world becomes lighter and better. And mm. every time, in, that's my new hi- hypothesis, that, that there is a long time of prosperity, mm-hmm. then the suns forget their responsibility and they don't mm. shine as much anymore. Mm. And uh, But it's also very nice that already Martin Luther King uh, already referred to this and Nelson Mandela referred to this, but all in a different way. And they, say, they always say it's not so much the bad that we worry, it's so much that the good doesn't shine. Eh? So that, that people are afraid of that. So that means that the challenge for sons is to radiate more. Mm-hmm. And so I asked my wife, who's an artist, I give many presentations. Could you make an artwork that gives the, the radiation of a sun? And that is not so easy eh? because just drawing a sun doesn't radiate. Eh? It's, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So she made uh, different studies. And the thing that I loved and I use in all my presentations now is, is what is behind me. It's, it's a kind of spiral. The spiral is kind of blazing red. And then there is this yellow in between. And you see all kinds of uh, yeah, sparks or whatever coming out of it. Mm-hmm. So it's really a, a radiating uh, picture. So I, I so just for me, this is the sun. Eh? So the, the, the remember, remember, to remember me that if I want to be a good leader, 
I have to radiate and I also have to give light to the moons around me. Brilliant, brilliant. I love this. I love this. When I look at your picture the first time, I saw it as a radiant rose, like a rose window in a cathedral. And I love your description of the radiance of the sun that we need to take accountability for so that we can also influence those people who may be more influential, influenceable, or I would say maybe a little less rooted in their sunness. That's my hypothesis. We're going to take a break in a moment because I want to hear from you, Case, how you help influence moons and also how you work with the other 10% of people uh, that are in society from this study that you're talking about as a leader in environment. And also, we're going to learn a little bit more about water and how important it is that we pay attention and become more conscious of, of water. So we're going to take a break in a moment. You'll be listening to Rooted and Unwavering with Kees Buisman, who is the executive director of VETSUS, the World Technology Institute in the Netherlands, and also a professor at Wageningen University in the Netherlands as well. See you soon. You are listening to Rooted and Unwavering, presented by Growth Leaders Network, the leadership, team, and culture development company. If you would like to learn more about working on connectedness for yourself, your team, or organization, please contact Growth Leaders Network on LinkedIn. And now, back to the show. So welcome back to Ruiten and Wavering. I'm your host, Hilke Faber. One thing that really struck me in the conversation we just had, Case, was this comment about really accepting who I am and basically breaking through all the layers of inauthenticity, which have something to do with making sure the world likes me. Okay, so thank you for that insight. Now, let's go to this question of the suns, the moons, and what do you call the other 10%? Well, you, you automatically can call them the black holes because they, they suck the light out of the society. Okay, the black holes. Okay, so... That's, that's English, right? That's a, it, it, is, yeah. it, it is English that I understand. I'm not a native speaker either, but it sounds right to me. So let's think about this suns, moons, and black holes in terms of your current work as an environmental leader in water. How do you practice being a sun? How do you work with moons? And what do you do with black hole? I think you should realize which of the three you are. Uh, and you could you could count on it. The black holes know that they are black holes. The moons, of course, are unaware. It's just a matter of what will be uh, if they are in the under the influence of black holes or under the influence of suns. Mm. So as a sun, I guess you have three responsibilities. First, to kiss awake the other suns because they forgot they were suns. Mm. Second, to shine light on the moons. To keep to keep the world light and not let it uh, darken, and third, to control the black holes mm -hmm. and uh, and to take care that they do not take over. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have a whole uh, justice systems that that take away criminal criminals, uh, and 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 uh, you could consider uh, that. But you can be a little bit afraid, of course, that that uh, especially the moons under the influence of black holes are in prison. 
and it's mm. not the black holes themselves uh, because mm. they mostly are uh, you, you could envision that but also when you run an organization uh, there are all kinds of uh, seductions for having an uh, exceptional good salesperson for instance which is a black hole and and creates a lot of problems in your organization but you do not want to fire him because he's the best salesperson Mm. So for me, in my first experiences at the, at a commercial company, it became clear to me that if I would ever be in charge of an organization, then I want to have a value-based organization and everybody who does not want to be uh, live these values cannot mm. be part of the organization. And in such way, I assume, keep the black holes out of our organization. Okay. Uh, and then as an organization not doing business, organizations and that are not radiating and that you, this way you can try to, to change the world and uh, of course it's not my career further uh, to get involved with black holes but as a society and uh, we must we must take our responsibility for political leaders for for people that are ceos of big companies that that they are not black holes and somewhere around 1980 we kind of lost that battle, and now we have to uh, to rewin it again. Yeah. So we've lost the battle, and what happened in the eighties? Well, it is clear that uh, many organizations are led by psychopaths, and, and mm. they are taking uh, risks with society to increase their profits uh, on the on the cost of society. Right. And, and right. the banking crisis, of course, is there an, is an incredibly good example, but also environmental scandals we have uh, all the time at this moment i think that, that there are examples enough but you can you can see it everywhere yeah. yes 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 i i love how direct you are case you're practicing what you just said earlier this is very clear that you don't mince words you you say it as you see it and i i really appreciate that so then in terms of how you lead vetsis you said i want to have an organization, I'm choosing to have an organization that's very values driven. And when you fit values, great. And if you don't, you, you're not going to stay here. So then how you lead VETSIS or co-lead VETSIS, because you now have taken a step back and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that experience in a moment that led you to stepping back. How do you work with this principle of suns and moons? Yeah, well, of course you try. I, so so in, in the first place, I do not hire everyone at that because we are we have this all this uh, PhD research that say for four years. So every month we hire several people. So that would be way too much work for me. So that's done by my staff. But I decide who stays. And uh, and like I said, yeah, you are. I think you are a sun or you are a moon. And so it's not something so easy to change. But assuming that especially leaders want to go to Vetsis, that there are many sons that need to be kissed awake. Eh? Right. So that's what that's what we try to do, of course. Right. And uh, but, but yeah, not everybody is a son. That's that's only 30% of the people. Not all of them uh, go to Vetsis, of course. Of course. So that, that I think that's it. And with the values, one of our values is called joy. And so so what would we what we think of values is you don't you, you have a value like joy, and then we, you define very precisely what are then the agreements that we ex expect everyone to follow uh, okay. at our organization. And and joy, one of the things is that we expect everyone 
to create a safe environment for personal growth yeah? because personal growth is one of the leading points yeah? so so but also enjoy we also have to celebrate our successes and that's also one of the mm-hmm. agreements mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. in our, so and then we have uh yeah five of these values okay so here's a question as a person who's very direct how do you create a environment of psychological safety for personal growth for the people around you because i can i'm imagining being a part of your organization right and i hear you say i decide who stays and who goes and i am invited to personally develop so and i'm supposed to feel safe so tell us a little bit about how that works i am sure it works given how you're talking and i'd like i'm curious about how from your perspective that works yeah i think that is that that is what makes it safe that it's so clear and uh so normally you go into organization and you know nothing and sometimes you're fired without that you know what's going on and so for us it's always very careful process that we de- define the reasons that you probably would your career in some other organization would be much more uh, uh promising and so and and yeah almost yeah of course so we hire about uh, like I said, two three persons per month, and and ninety five percent of them leaves vetses, and 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 everybody already is expecting to leave vetses in four years to go to industry or to university. It's not like it, it's kind of normal process. It's not like that everybody who's joining vetses is, is expected to to meet his retirement here. Right? That's that's not how it goes. But uh, of all the people that I fired in my life. Uh, 95% always thanks me afterwards that I was completely right and they have a much better life now uh, in another organization. Ah. So, yeah, so th- I, I would not consider that as unsafe. But the, but the personal growth, of course, is always a process of courage mm. and a process of perseverance. Mm-hmm. And like I say, everybody should, should find the career that he meets luck. So if you never are lucky, then uh, you probably are in the wrong career. And of course, yeah, you need yeah you need luck and courage and perseverance to to get on your right path. I already told you last time that that I believe uh, Dutch speed skating. No, it's not Dutch. It's uh, of course a global sport now, but mm-hmm. in the Netherlands, it's a very uh, important sport. That uh, I'm a, I was a speed skater when I was a student, and if you want to learn speed skating, then you have to put your total weight and balance on this enormous small piece of iron. It's it's less than it's about one millimeter thick. It's about thirty centimeter long, and your whole yeah. weight has to be on there. But you can only go fast. Is it 50-50? So it must be fifty percent on the outside and fifty percent on the inside. And the whole thing of speed skating is that that on the inside is the safe side, because then you won't fall. Mm. But if you are too much on the outside, you will fall over your skate and you fall on the ice. Mm. And it is impossible to be a good speed skater if you don't dare to fall mm. over your skates. And if you don't experience when you go too far mm. to become a master where you can balance exactly in the middle. I also think it's about your career. If you always stay on the safe side, there is a very big chance that you don't find your path because you never mm. found your real flow 
when you are 50-50 on your skate. Mm. So in order to do that, you have to be, yeah, fall over sometime. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and if you don't, if you're not prepared to take that risk, then you probably do not find your pass. In, in, in and your your the best career that is there for you. I love this. I'm I'm also a speed skater. I'll probably not as fast as you were in your student years. And that sense of having to go make your strike and you go onto the right foot and you have to lean totally on that skate and you can fall over. And it's it's almost like a transcendental experience of giving over into something that you don't quite knew existed. And then when you're in it, you're like, oh my goodness. And then the next one and the next one. It's very meditative. Um, I found when I did it later, I, I later on started meditating and I started to understand the, the similarity between those two practices, between speed skating and, and meditating, very similar. So as you're speaking about this case, this idea of finding your truth by allowing yourself to fall, I'm very struck also by your deep, unflinching truthfulness. Right? Because my mind made up, well, maybe being so truthful is not so safe. But actually, you taught me just now saying, no, no, no. It's exactly the truthfulness that is the safety. And that means, as you said early in the conversation, sometimes people don't like me and that's okay. And speed skating, I sometimes fall flat on the ice. Career, I might fall on my face. And so tell me a little bit about how you maybe in your life have maybe fallen on your face sometimes and what you learned from that. Yeah, when, when I was at my first job, I uh, slowly but suddenly uh, became more and more commercial and more and more focused on uh, the bonuses. And uh, and at, at, and then all of a sudden I was waking up. Was, uh, was an all of a sudden new management, and they came the announcement that you should do less innovation. And then I woke up that I was I was off my path. I I was no longer there, and uh, yes. so I was too much into the commercials. But then I I became professor, and it, it's also completely clear to me the academic world also has a lot of uh, decency. I think you say it's also English, uh, decadency. Uh, decadence. Decadence. Yes. Yes. So you're spending tax money. And of course, I, I expect uh, that the society can expect that something comes from return. And uh, some people, some, yeah. So, so it is also clear that it, among the professors, many people, that, that was not my way either. And so, mm. so being a professor, where uh, reality eh, of, of the real life society and and, and the, the, the academic uh, new insights would have to merge. That was the only acceptable position for me as a professor. And uh, so that's so I so I'm so among the professors they call me businessman and among the businessmen they call me professor. So that's exactly then I am exactly in the middle. I found out. So I could I could not be happy on the outsides of these two, only just on the border. And that's so fantastic about Vestas, which is your cooperation model between companies and, uh, and professors. Yeah, where everything comes together for my comes life. Together. And yeah, it is uh, very interesting that I had to found 
my own institutes where my personality fits the best. <laughs> you bring those two things together, the business person and the researcher, the innovator, and also a third part of your personality, which is about self-growth. I heard you're also a lay leader in churches. So tell us about how that all influences each other. I'm sensing you are like a whole system in which you reverberate between those different areas. Yeah, well, I, 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 I did. So I did uh, one of the studies I did was uh, was uh, integrated psychology, integrated applied psychology, and uh, then we had to read the books of Ken Wilber uh, as an assignment, and then I wrote his books, and he said, uh, you know, to grow yourself, you have, also have to do spiritual activity. And I think, well, I am from a spiritual background of Christianity in the Netherlands. So then I want to to do something like that and not be Buddhist or whatever. Uh, so so that's when I started to, to go a little bit in that direction. And I think um, if the assignment of the church was to make a better person of everyone that's going there. So you go there every week to think one hour and hear the holy stories to become a better person, that is a fantastic system for society. Of course, I'm not sure if, if that's how everybody sees it, but uh, but that for me was the motivation uh, because it doesn't matter what system you choose, capitalist, communist, uh, authoritarian, or the democratic, as long as there is no integrity, then no system will work. Yes. And integrity is a personal choice for everyone. And that's also something worrisome for the world. Uh, if we don't have these systems anymore, we used to have, um, where can people find then this one hour per week to become a better person, uh, to, to work yes. on your own integrity? But yes. for me, that's, that is clear that, that, that if, you have, if you have to run an institute and your people are, there's no integrity, you cannot run it. It's impossible. You will have fraud and corruption everywhere. Yes. So you... As a leader, must be the must be the example of uh, of this pure integrity attitude. So that's yes. how it comes together. And the second thing is, I also give uh, pre uh, preach uh, in the church. I give this talk. How you say that preach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, and that has been a fantastic school for me to tell stories, inspirational stories that are not based on science. So non-technical story, because you must, you must realize that technological people normally hide their personality behind their skills. And if you're a leader, you, you actually cannot do that. And you have to be there yourself and, and show your own personality. Yes. And, uh, and by giving these sermons, you, you learn to tell stories about inspirational topics that is much closer to you than be hiding behind your scientific attitudes. And so, so it's also one of the, the things that I tell all the people that we hire. We hire you as a scientist, but you also have to grow as a human because hiding between your science is not good enough for us. And so, yes, yes, yes. You can't hide. You have to express more and more of who you are. I'm, I'm thinking of the building of Vetsis. And to me, it's some kind of, juxtaposition between Noah's Ark and a beehive. And when I heard your story just now, it's like a beautiful building 
surrounded by water of wood with planks and places to look through. And I don't do a very good job describing. But what I'm hearing you is I'm almost seeing you in this in, psychologically in this structure that you have created that is not even linear. The building isn't even linear. It has all kinds of weird angles, uh, like a natural thing that has emerged, almost like a, an alien creature that has landed in Leovard and in this water. And you have created this as a dojo, as a practice ground to become more in integrity, to become more in integrity, in, in integrating science, business, spirituality, this psychology, uh, living, and, all, and, and you are able and you're, and you're going past that m moment on the skates where you, you're leaning in and you're allowing yourselves to fall in all of these areas and taking big risks. You know, it's not, it's one thing to read a spiritual book. Another thing is to preach. It's an entirely different thing. So amazingly, we're getting close to the end of our conversation, which uh, has flown by. What would you say to somebody who says things, integrity, yeah, but I feel I'm in a lot of pain and confusion. I don't know how to get to integrity. What would you say to a person like that? Yeah, that's very difficult. Uh, very difficult assignment. <laughs> uh -huh. So you need, to, you need to know, of course, is this pain, is this a psychological problem? Is this uh, because of uh, life is disappointing? Is this because of uh, a shadow eh, that you that you're not true to yourself? Um, and that you have to fight. And, and it's also I also found with young people they, they they were eating such a bad diet that their brains got confused just because they their brains didn't get the right material anymore. I had it with my own son. Is the yeah, and he got. He went to a doctor and he gave him fish oil, and all of a sudden uh, he changed completely, and his will to live was uh, restored. So there, there are too many reasons why you can be in pain, but not being in tech and teaker because you are in pain, of course, is not a good reason. Right? It's uh, mm -hmm. that that's, that should be a part. Yeah. And, and, and what does it mean? Go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to say because the time is over, you said I was going to step down at Vetsis, but that's not true. When I started Vetsis, from the beginning, I demanded, uh, I was the first person starting at Vetsis, I demanded there will be a second person to take care of the administration as a director. And I wanted to, I said that there was, was kind of unusual, that I did not want to be the boss. I wanted us to be together the boss. So we, we are commonly boss, so co-bosses, as it's called these days, co-CEOs, yeah. from the beginning, so that I could completely focus on, on science, innovation, the inspiration, the personal yeah. growth, and he could focus completely on talking to accountants and the, and the government and the, and the, and, the <laughs> and counting the money and whatever. And so that, that that would not be in my in, in my way it's because that is not inspiration for me. Yeah. That was one of the things I found out uh, when I was at this commercial company that when I had to take care of these things, I became less inspirational to my people that report to me mm -hmm. and I didn't want that anymore because actually I don't like it and therefore I cannot inspire people. So mm -hmm. so I had to get rid of that responsibility. 
Yeah. I see such a commitment in you, staying true to what lifts you up, what makes you feel radiant. What it's like, it's almost like you kiss your own son this way, where you're saying, No, I'm no, I'm not doing that. I am not going to be the business leader because that's not what brings me joy. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing here. And to me, that's a very beautiful invitation also to me and to maybe other people who are listening and ask ourselves, what brings you joy? What is true? What, what resonates in your bones for you? And what life choices do you make based upon that? Career-wise, uh, life-wise. You can find that out when you realize it's not your thing. So you have to try it out. You have to be courageous. Mm. You have to be on the outside of the skate. And then you find out this is not my thing. And then uh -huh. you can get rid of it again so that you can be in your flow. Yes. In your flow. And also, yeah, writing this book was, a, was a, I have doubting, I've been doubting about it for several years because I thought I would expose myself too much. Uh, and also not completely clear if my story would be interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but finally, I decided to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I rewrote it already three times, and yeah, you have the most uh, advanced version. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and now, uh, yeah, now I hear from people. It's a very hopeful book in a hopeless time. So I feel very satisfied. I did it, I, and I'm, it must be clear that I'm not a writer. I'm not going to write another book, at least not soon. But it's very important to realize, Hilke, that it's also translated in English. In English, it's called. We can only solve the water crisis if we change. The latest, we can only solve the water crisis if we change. Yes, so we that's can, the, the English version of this book. It's still available, uh, I guess, on all kinds of websites. Okay. Well, we, we'll put that also on the, the on the website where we talk about this website. We can only we can only serve solve the water crisis if we change. And what the, crisis, what the water crisis is, you'll have to read about in this book. I think you probably have an idea about simply because we're running out of time. I have one final question. But you're also running out of water. <laughs> and water. <laughs> There you go. If you had 45 seconds and you had a microphone that you could talk to all 8 billion of us from into our ears, into our hearts, what would you want to say? I think it's uh, incredibly important that we all have world perspective, that we do not only see the dry river we experience ourselves, but also realize all the dry rivers in the world. And we have to share everything eh, on this planet, especially the water. And, and stealing the water from someone else is not, is not going to solve this problem. And so we all have to realize that we have to share the water especially the rich people must use less water. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Case, I knew I was going to be uh, uplifted and surprised in this conversation. And whenever I talk to you and I think my mind's going this way, you go, oh, uh, no, it's the other way. Uh, you helped me fall over my own skates, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful experience to have. So I can see what you bring. We've been listening to case Bausman, and maybe in a moment I'm going to invite you to say one final thing whatever you want to say to close uh, the core insight I had from this conversation amongst many was to take have the courage to make choices that are true for you and 
be willing to fall on your face and then get back up again and make a different choice. Thank you for that. Anything that you want to say by way of closing, Case? Of course. Be a son. Be radiating. Be a son. Be radiating. Well, for me, you have done that today, Case, and I'm sure others will agree with me. Thank you so much for being with us. It was heart-opening, mind-bending, and um, I love being with you today. You've been listening to Ruritan and Wavering. Uh, Enjoyed being in presence with you. Next time, which will be in July, on uh, July 14, I will be sitting in Case's chair. I will be interviewed uh, to talk about my experiences with being rooted and also unrooted and quite wavering at times. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more of those conversations, Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or LinkedIn, where you find these podcasts also on YouTube. And of course, you can find out more about Case Bausman on LinkedIn and Vetsus on LinkedIn and read his book, We Can Only Solve the Water Crisis If We Change, or in Dutch, The Mens is Geen Plaag. We'll see each other again in uh, a few weeks or online somewhere. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Case, for being with us. The true honor. Thank you for joining us in today's episode of Rooted and Unwavering, leadership conversations about courageous connectedness, presented by the leadership development company, Growth Leaders Network. To learn more, subscribe to this podcast, connect with Growth Leaders Network and Hilke Faber on LinkedIn, or read Hilke's award-winning book, Taming Your Crocodiles. Now take a moment and appreciate something that is great about you. Celebrate the gift that you are and enjoy connecting more deeply to your best self today. See you next time on Rooted and Unwavering.